We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I want to give a quick shout out to our partner, Athletic Greens. I take AG1 by Athletic Greens literally every day, and I started to give them a try because I realized that in order to be the real champion of my life, I have to take care of my body. It's an absolute non-negotiable. So I was looking for a comprehensive supplement that I could take daily as a way to increase my overall health and good habits. Because I've realized that one small thing every day is the quickest way that I can create lasting change in my life. And I think about it like this. My choices and my actions matter. So I think of taking AG1 as a choice that is a vote for the person that I want to become someone who's balanced, vibrant, healthy, and full of energy. And that's why I love AG1. It tastes so great and it gives me everything that I need to feel my best. So if all-in-one comprehensive solution is what you need for your supplement routine, then Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. So go over to athleticgreens.com coachable. That's athleticgreens.com coachable today. What's up, you guys? Welcome back to the Coachable Podcast. I am in studio today solo, but I'm joined virtually by Matthias Barker, a licensed mental health counselor based in Nashville who specializes in treatment of complex trauma, childhood abuse, and marital issues. He's also a very well-known social media influencer, if you will, in the mental health space. He's got garnered an incredible audience of over 5 million people. I, being one of his favorite uh, followers and like biggest fans, I've followed Matthias for quite a few years now since I, I remember coming across his content on TikTok because it was deeply grounded and rooted in truth and love and compassion and I can just feel his genuine nature for wanting to help people. And so I'm really thrilled about the opportunity to talk to him and have him join me virtually from Nashville. So Matthias, thank you for taking time. Thank you for being here. And I'm really excited to to get a chance to talk to you. Oh, what a gift. Thank you. That was such a kind intro too. So happy to be here, get to talk to you. I've also followed you for a while. I think we actually probably crossed paths pretty early on when Mm -hmm. I was getting started. And so 
it's been fun to kind of watch you grow. And I don't know, our messages have a lot of alignment. So it's been fun to watch this space grow just even as a genre. So Definitely. happy to talk because I'd get to talk. Yeah, to I know. When I started following you, I think it was prior to you becoming a father. That is something yeah. somewhat new in your life. What has fatherhood been like? Oh, man. Well, it's uh, currently I've, I have two kiddos under two. So wow. It is, oh, well, okay, not under two. Sorry, two. Uh, are, my oldest is two, so okay. two two kiddos that are in diapers and um, uh, sleeping through the night mostly. But we always get uh, some surprises, you know, each week. So <laughs> I think that, I mean, a lot of the, I don't know, when I anticipated fatherhood, I was thinking about a lot about like these philosophical lessons I wanted to impart and what that like meant about me as a person and the legacy I want to leave behind and what are my core values and then. I got in it and it was like none of the philosophical stuff came forward. It was all just like, <laughs> how do I support my wife? How do we stay regulated when you're super tired and you're exhausted and the kids thrown their eggs on the floor for the 40th time and you question all of your like, I don't know, parenting skills that you got from school as a therapist and mm. and you're just like about to pull your hair out. And you're like, what do I do? So it's it's funny, all the lessons I thought that parenting was going to bring to me. Um, I don't know. They, they've been replaced with different realities that have grown mm. me in different ways. So it's been great and joyous and full of so much more joy than I could even have imagined and more challenging in spaces I didn't anticipate. It's not the toddler years. It's mm. great. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> Isn't yeah. it funny and interesting though, that it's like all of our tools, all of our awareness, all the things we think we know really get tested when like we've got to go and apply them and use them. And, mm -hmm. and our patience is really tested. And we're like you were saying, you're tired. It's like, it's in those moments that we get, we learn more about ourselves than any other time. And yeah. I know whether it's being a new parent or for those moving into new jobs, new relationships, coming out of relationships, just in general, like life is what I consider like a is school. It's where we learn mm -hmm. these lessons. It's where we get tested. Yeah. And relationships mm -hmm. are often like our greatest teachers for that. And I can only imagine what that's like when when I do hopefully get the opportunity to become a mother. It's like a whole new, yeah. <laughs> whole new training yeah. ground for learning mm -hmm. about myself as well. Totally. I think I mean, it's it's almost cliche to say it. Everyone says it so often, but there, there really is a difference of having the head knowledge versus getting in the circumstance yourself and flexing some of those ideas and seeing how they fit on your context. And I think I was, I was like pretty happy to find out that most of the stuff I learned in school is actually super helpful. Like for example, like um, I read this book by uh, the Gottmans who are um, a power couple that lead the Gottman Institute, which is one of the more well-known couples counseling um foundations and research hubs out there in therapy world. And uh, they wrote a book called In Baby Makes Three. And it was all um, these strategies for making sure that your marriage um, or your partnership is really solid with the introduction of a kid. Because um, what's been known in the dad for a long time is that when you have a kid, typically um, relationship satisfaction goes down um, unless there's these key indicators, these, these features of the relationship that are maintained and focused on. So that was what the whole book was about. So I absorbed that information um, with a lot of fervor mm -hmm. as, as we found out we were pregnant and kind of diving into that. And I was encouraged to see like, oh, okay, this is like aligning with a lot of stuff that I've learned just kind of throughout my career as a therapist working with kids. And 
And then when I wore that and put it on, I found that it was really helpful. Things like, you know, not being hypercritical and that when you have a problem, let's say with your partner or, you know, you're, you're trying to negotiate what to do about, I don't know, your own personal quality time that you spend with your friends versus how much time you spend with your family versus how much time you spend with your job. Like, you know, those arguments can turn into really heated affairs and mm -hmm. you can get really frustrated and overwhelmed, especially if you haven't had a lot of sleep. And so just some like basic guardrails of not being critical, meaning not throwing out accusations and using blame, but talking instead about the actual um, hard facts of the circumstance and then your experience of it mm. and helping them see your experience of the troublesome circumstance versus putting the trouble of the circumstance at their feet, you know, is, is not just, um, you know, the nice thing to do. It's actually the pragmatic thing to do mm. because when you approach an argument or a conflict, essentially saying you are the problem, like that only gives the other person two options. And that's either to admit, yes, I am the problem and just to take it all on themselves and just kind of like fold or they have to resist you, you know, and turns out the resistance in the argument is the thing preventing you from arriving at the best solution that you can. So the least amount of resistance or unnecessary resistance that needs to be in there, the better. And I don't know, that's kind of an abstract way to explain it, but there is a, a really like grounding truth of like, I have so many things that I want to say in this moment, so many things that are like instinctual and impulsive that I want to mm -hmm. let out when I feel tired and frustrated and uncertain of what to do next mm -hmm. and um, to slow down, to take a break, to think through what am I really experiencing? What's actually difficult about this? And let her into my experience and vice versa. Oof, that just, um, I think we avoided a lot of things that could have been really detrimental. That's so it's it's... On one hand, it's, yeah, you, you really don't really get it till you're there. But yeah. on the other hand, it's like some of those truths, they really do stand up, they you know, and, and it's, it's better to go in with that than without it for sure. So, Absolutely. That's yeah, amazing well. to hear that, that the things that you've learned theoretically or in school or you understand logically actually, yeah, stand the test when you're in the moment. And, and I want to just kind of go deeper on that because, because I think this is so important. You mentioned kind of what those uh, primary pillars of relationship, you know, are the, the fundamental parts that, that are going to hold up under the weight and the tension and the pressure of life, whether that's bringing a child into the world or uh, a diagnosis or job change or being a caregiver, you know, like life <laughs> is full of twists and turns and unexpected, you know, mm -hmm. things that we have to face. And um, for those of us who are, you know, either in partnership right now or looking to be in partnership uh, in the future, I would love to know kind of what your take is on what are those, those pillars, those foundational pillars mm -hmm. that we need to have a long, um, healthy, sustainable relationship? Like, what would you say are those things we should look for? Um, yeah, happy to talk about that. And then I want to hear your, <laughs> your version of that too. I'd sure. fascinated to learn what yours are also, but here's maybe where I would set up camp is, so I'm a trauma therapist primarily. Like that's kind of really like the core of, of my work is mm -hmm. helping people heal from trauma. And even in reference to relationships, romantic relationships, uh, child parent relationships, your friendships, I'm thinking about how have the past experiences that you had growing up informing how you're trying to connect in the present. And so when you think about romantic relationships, you know, there's 
there's two ways really that you can connect. One would be sort of out of like a place of lack and longing from an attachment relationship to your parent that you didn't really have completely solidified. It could be for all sorts of reasons. Like maybe you didn't really have, you know, a mother who was super physically affectionate and really warm towards you. She was more cold. And that could have been uh, for a lot of reasons. That could have been because, you know, maybe she was just more kind of conscientious and disciplined and had these stern expectations. Could be just because she was ill. Like there's a lot of people who grow up with a mom who was just sick really often. So you know, the stimulation of a lot of physical touch wasn't something just by natural consequence that was a part of their upbringing, not because anyone intended it to be so, but just because of the circumstances, you know? And, and so like, let's say physical affection is, is kind of a, an unexplored territory for you. Then when you're going into a relationship romantically with someone, you know, maybe you respond to that by having an over-enthusiasm for wanting physical touch. And, and it's not just that the physical touch in that relationship is is necessary or it makes you feel good. It's like, it's like, I need it. And if it's not there, I don't feel okay. And so, you know, your, your partner almost feels a bit overstimulated and overwhelmed by it. Or when you don't have physical connection or intimate connection, you feel slighted or abandoned and, um, you know, emotionally withdrawn, you know, on the other end, maybe you actually are really reserved because you didn't have it. It's something that actually you avoid. I mean, people are different. They respond to their wounds in all sorts of ways, you know? So, Avoiding it could present just as many problems on the other end of the spectrum. Sure. Your, your partner's confused. They, they personalize it. They think it means something's wrong with them or you're not attracted to them or you're just not a very sexual or physical person. And really, that's just some stuff you have in your past that you need to process and work through mm-hmm. because uh, that left a wound, you know? That left, that left um, an imprint on you. It wasn't, you know, just irrelevant and it doesn't continue to be irrelevant. It's deeply... Um, ingrained in your nervous system. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we can approach people out of attachment wounds, right? These parent trauma-based wounds, or we can approach people on a, a grounded sense of connection that's negotiated in the present. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is I want to I want to come towards you as an adult, as someone that I care about, as someone that uh, is in a mutual relationship, right? So you're not my caretaker, you're not my project, you're not my redemption. You're not my, uh, you know, there's, there's, I'm not projecting something from me onto you that I need in order to feel okay. It's like, I'm actually doing the self work to heal and step into my values in the deepest way I know how, and you're doing so. And so in partnership, we just get to watch what is already sufficient grow and shine mm-hmm. and become enhanced and sharpened in relationship with another person. Yeah. And that's that's something I think foundational when I think in an abstract sense, like, well, what are we up to in a romantic relationship? I think it's the enhancement, the growth, the um, getting to see in another person a mirror of uh, how we as individuals and we as a couple are growing and becoming something new. So Yeah, it sounds like know. there's these that- two ways that we can orient towards our romantic partner, whether it's from attachment wounds or from the grounded sense of, of who we are and, and approaching it from, you know, not a lack or I need you to fulfill this thing that's a void within myself, but I'm coming as my full self. And that, that brings up a question that I'm curious about your, is, do you think we're ever fully healed? Because in my experience, healing has been a spectrum. It's been a journey. I'm still on it. I'm still dealing and, and, you know, uh, alchemizing the things of my past and, Yet I still want to be in partnership, right? So 
does that change the way, like the way we orient? Is this something that's happening ongoing and continuing to unfold? Or is it something like we need to be, have done this work and completed certain levels of this work before we can um, kind of come to a partnership from that whole grounded place? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think people take different approaches and have different philosophies on this. So here's maybe what I hold. I don't know if it's the right thing, but this is provisionally what I believe in the moment is, yeah, I do think that you can heal specific instances. And I think that that's not the same thing as arrival or perfection Mm -hmm. or being completely all, you know, put together. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it could be analogous to physical healing. Like I think that an injury of your arm can fully heal, Sure, you know, but that's not to say you're never going to encounter illness or there's not certain injuries that present chronic, you know, pain or that different injuries heal in different ways. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, there's different ability levels depending on what we've been through or the environments that we grew up in that can be more longstanding. But one of the, I think the insights of even the last 15, 20 years in the neuroscience is just how plastic the brain is, meaning how malleable and how um, open to change our brains and minds are. Mm. And we used to have this idea that once you kind of have this attachment as a kid, you know, maybe your mom breastfed you and there was really warm cuddles and and you're set, you're great in life. You're going to have all the success in the world. Or if, you know, your mom let you cry it out in the crib and you were, you know, had this terrible relationship, then you're screwed. You know, you're, you're really done for. And that's just not what the data has been showing. The data has been showing that we're plastic, meaning we're flexible. We can come from hard circumstances. We can press in towards whether you want to call it resiliency, whether you want to call it trauma healing, uh, post-traumatic growth, like everyone has different titles for what that thing is. But I think of it as healing. I think that when you really can process the memory, then it can be consolidated. That's Mm -hmm. what the neuroscience shows. It's like you can actually, um, like for example, in, in, in complex trauma, it's, it's not uncommon to see shrinkage in an area of the brain called the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is the part of your brain that helps you kind of slot your memories within a timeline. It helps you talk about and understand and make meaning out of um, the things that you've experienced. There's, there's other regions that are involved in that too, but the hippocampus is part of the consolidation of that, meaning kind of almost the filing system where you place it within the story of your life. And when you go through high trauma, that region of the brain is not just inactive, but in some patients it actually shrinks. But we can see that through different interventions, I mean, mindfulness has been shown to be really helpful in this. Different trauma therapies are helpful in this. That area of the brain can grow back Mm. and actually expand in the gray matter, which kind of blew everyone's mind. And and not only can your hormonal systems, for example, if you've been through complex trauma, you probably have a higher dose of cortisol rolling through your body. And that's because of something called the activation of the HPA axis. That can be reversed. We've seen Mm. that. We've seen that through different trauma interventions, different sorts of therapies. I mean, everything from, gosh, neurofeedback to trauma yoga to talk therapy. Like, Mm. you know, there's all sorts of different ways to get up the mountain, but you can, you can actually see those cortisol levels go back down and, and that's measurable. So I think on one level, can healing really happen? Yes. Like a resounding, hopeful, joyous, yes. I Mm. think that is a... That's about as, you know, well established on a, you know, measurement level that you could hope for. Mm. Um, is, does that mean I'm, I get to a place where I'm perfect and now I'm ready for a relationship because I have no character problems or maturity to bark <laughs> on or no, like, like I think 
we all have struggles and we're, there's not like an arrival where your past never bothers you again. I think that different circumstances bring up different aspects of your past that then become more or less troublesome or require different levels of reflection. Like yeah. I think that I've reflected on my relationship with my dad in like three or four different ways at three or four different seasons of my life. I had to make peace with him when I was 16 and then that changed when I was 24 and and even again as a new father myself. So there's different dimensions to even processing a relationship with a single person. Right. You know, I hope that no, it does. It more confusing. That's, no, no, no. That's <laughs> yeah. really helpful. And what I take from it is this is good news. <laughs> this is very, very good news. And yeah. what you were just saying, I think in that last piece about your father and that you've, there have been different times in your life where you've worked on different aspects of that, of healing that relationship and that dynamic, that that doesn't disqualify you from being in a beautiful, loving, healthy relationship, you know? Yeah. And, um, but I, I want to go into this uh, around attachment wounding a little bit more because I know that there are people that are listening who are in relationships or or have just gone through a breakup or are reflecting on their past relationships as they get ready to start dating again. And they're like, I want, you know, so many of us were like, I want to get it right. Like I want to have a family or I want to have a, a loving, stable relationship, but maybe they can't seem to, to find that or, or create that. What are some indicators that people are in relationships and they're oriented to their partner from a place of attachment wounding, as you were kind of um, alluding to earlier, mm -hmm. versus, versus the, the latter? Yeah. Well, so I think that the marker that I look for, I wish I had like, like a great three or five point bullet thing mm -hmm. to tell you, but the really the single marker I'm looking for is rigidity. And what I mean by that is when when I can't flexibly kind of relate to a circumstance in front of me, be able to kind of work my way around it, find some acceptance or problem solve with it. But I have this almost singular way this has to happen. And then when it doesn't, you know, happen that way, I'm either trying to control it or I'm either trying to avoid it. Man, that's, that's, that's a prime red flag that there's something deeper going on. Mm. And I can give an example to, to put some yes, know, please. Uh, structure around that. So like, I don't know, maybe, um, I want to spend some one-on-one -on -one time with my wife and she wants to go hang out with her friends and I feel kind of abandoned and frustrated. And I tell her like, Hey, I would really, we haven't had a lot of quality time lately. It'd be great if you could just stay back and hang with me. And then she's like, well, no, I, I really want to see the girls. Like we have this thing, like you know, whatever. And so let's say that she leaves and I get really frustrated and then I'm tempted to kind of just send some passive aggressive texts or, um, or to get frustrated and then I kind of just in cold over the next few days. So mm -hmm. like she's back and she wants to connect like maybe later that weekend, she's like, let's go grab lunch. And I'm like, eh, I don't know. Like, and I almost have this passive punishment type deal for, you know, abandoning me on Thursday night. Well, what, what's, uh, what are the features of that? I'm like, well, there's some rigidity there. There's some rigidity around like, okay, I can't have this, you know, desire to, meet with you or hang out with you met on a different day. It has to be tonight. And, and then the way that I'm trying to control that is with a passive sort of punishing behavior, whether that's the texts or me getting cold later on. And, mm. and that's probably fueled from something in me. It's probably something from my past. When we have an almost an over the top inflexible reaction to a circumstance, it's often because it's fueled with this energy of something like, I can't let this happen again. And what I mean by that is, I think if we were to look in the mirror, we could 
we could see our passive aggressive texts a few days later and we could be like, why are we sending that? Like, why am I being so needy or clingy or why am I being so controlling or why am I being so cold? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, I mean, in all likelihood, you, you know what it's like to be abandoned or you know what it's like to, to have someone say they're going to connect with you and reach out to you only to kind of be left lacking and left um, alone. And you know the sadness and the loneliness that comes along with that. And, and you really are terrified of that. Mm. And so when you see pieces in your partner or even in your week with your partner that remind you of what it's like to encounter that deep sadness or loneliness, you react and you react not just to the situation at hand, but it's almost like compound interest. It's like you react to the whole thing. You react to the whole wound all at once. And, and, uh, and that's why the behavior seems so out of proportion with what is happening in the moment because mm-hmm. you're not just reacting to the moment. You're reacting to like seven moments. You're reacting to a whole pattern, whether in the relationship or otherwise, that is upsetting. And so I, I look at the rigidity and I look at the intensity, the inflexibility. Mm-hmm. That's a feature of it. No, that's what do you look for when you're thinking about that, Tori? Like <laughs> when how do I know if I'm in a triggered place, if I'm in a space that's in my stuff, or mm. if I'm reacting correctly just to the environment? What do you look Well, for? to what you just said, I I can feel I can feel like a desperate energy within myself. It's yeah, like, right. it, it's, it's a very scared, desperate, like I ca- have to have to change this and it has, to, because if I can change it, then I'll feel better. And, um, but as I've <laughs> experienced this over time, the way in which I try to control the situation actually doesn't make it better at all. And so as mm-hmm. I've become more aware, I'm more aware of like my body's sensation and reaction the emotional, like the story that I'm creating, the mm. emotional response that I'm having. And it's, yeah, it's um, uh, how, how intense that is compared to the moment. And if I didn't have tools to self-regulate and before, before I did, and this is why it's therapy and working with coaches and doing the healing work has been so, so, so beneficial for me. It was, I would self-sabotage these, these moments, uh, you know, and I didn't understand why, what felt like I was, what I was doing to create safety was actually perpetuating the thing I was so afraid of. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, I, I felt myself in a lot of self-sabotaging patterns before I'd learned ways to actually soothe myself, the part of myself that was really scared uh, of repeating mm-hmm. the same pain that I'd experienced in the past. And I heard something that you said at one point, which I'd love for you to kind of uh, elaborate on as it pertains to what we're talking about, which is your quote was, are you willing to trade what feels safe for what is actually safe? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I'm so excited to talk about this because this show is all about leveling up your game. And that's the mental, emotional, spiritual game as well. And I know that we've all been through something challenging in our life, whether that's the loss of a loved one, a relationship, or just trying to figure out your place, your purpose, and your worth. There is nothing more valuable that I have found in my life than finding safe spaces for me to talk through what's really going on in between my ears, inside my head, and Sometimes our mind can be our biggest block to transformation. But with BetterHelp, you have a 
therapist that you can connect with entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suitable for your schedule. So if you're thinking about starting therapy, I really encourage you guys to try BetterHelp. All you have to do is go to betterhelp.com slash coachable today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash coachable. Sending the passive aggressive text, showing my displeasure by maybe withdrawing or giving the silent treatment or what all, all the ways that we do this, right? Um, yeah. As a way to feel safe or, you know, being very judgmental or critical to get them to comply with what I wanted them to do. You know, that's what felt safe because that was practice behavior. It was what maybe I learned as a child that I needed to do to get my way or to get what I wanted or to create an environment that was less threatening. Um, But you say, are we willing to trade what feels safe for what actually is safe? Can you expand on that? What does that really mean in the context of what we're talking about? Yeah, I love I love that you picked out that line that is essentially kind of um, pointing to the reality that often the thing that makes us feel safe is a strategy that we formed in a different context. Meaning that we formed a strategy as a kid, you know, growing up or in college or in a different relationship, you know, that, that probably actually was functional in that moment mm-hmm. um, that, that did help us feel safe, but we're copying and pasting that old strategy into this new situation. And while it may produce some short-term feelings of safety because it reminds us of the time we were safe, goodness, man, it's, it, it often makes the problem worse and actually compounds the issue rather than mm-hmm. helping it. Mm-hmm. So for example, in that you know, circumstance of the withdrawal, like maybe you, maybe you did have a parent that just genuinely was disconnected. They were wrapped up in their own stuff. And so you withdrew and that was actually pretty wise in the moment, at least you know, for a kid that was working off their feet was, hey, this person isn't, Available. Yeah, this person isn't available. I I shouldn't just keep like extending myself out there and getting let down over and over. Having hope that they're going to connect with me is actually harder and having hope shattered is worse than, you know, than maybe just not even trying in the first place, Mm. you know? And so that was probably actually a pretty spot on intuition as a kid, even though as sad as that is. But then you apply that maybe to a new circumstance where, you feel the slightest hint of abandonment or withdrawal and then you just kind of give up hope of ever connecting with them in the first place and you totally recluse. It's like, no, that, that strategy needs to be updated. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're applying it with a generative um, kind of method, meaning you're applying it as a general rule of life over all relationships, over, over all things that remind you of abandonment. This is kind of your default thing. Mm-hmm. And your strategy needs to be updated. It's almost, I use the analogy sometimes like a, like an, like an app update or like a phone update. Mm-hmm. It's like all your apps are crashing because you're using software based off of old systems. Right. And everything's running slow because nothing's updated. Mm-hmm. And in a funny way, that's kind of some of the, you know, the brain science of what trauma healing is, is at least a piece of it is updating. You know, it's realizing, oh, these strategies that I formed in a really overwhelming experience as a kid that were the best I had access to, maybe the best thing I could come up with in the moment these don't uh, do justice to the circumstance at hand. And in large part, because of what we were just saying at the beginning, because one, this isn't an attachment relationship. This isn't a parent. This isn't a caregiver. This is a mutual relationship based off of um, consent and mutual love and you know, getting to enhance each other's lives, not be the security for each other mm. um, in a parental sense. Right. 
you know? So yeah. I mean, what comes to mind for you in that? Yeah. I think giving up our attachment to doing things the way we've always done them is inherently scary, is inherently unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, there, there were times where, you know, things would come to a head and I, I could see the pattern playing itself out um, mm-hmm. as I became more aware. And it was like, I've, I've got two choices. You know, I can do same thing. I can respond in the same way. I can try to get my needs met by withdrawing or tr- erupting or being judgy or, or whatever the rigidity is um, and making, you know, really trying to force someone to comply to my will so that I can feel better. Um, mm-hmm. Or I can try something new, which is trading in what feels safe or what actually is safe. But I had to learn what actually, what is actual safety, right? What do I actually yeah. need? What, what is the thing that I need to actually give myself or need to, to like feel that sense of okayness, which is what we're all after. We're all wanting just to feel okay, <laughs> that inner peace, yeah. that, that comfort. And we seek it out in all different types of ways. And so I think part of it mm-hmm. that comes to mind for me is learning how to identify what actually is safe versus what have yeah. I thought that was or how have I approached it in the past? Do you have a method for trying to identify what is safe? Mm. Do you have um, any reflections on that? Yeah, I think part part of it for me has developed, uh, been developing a relationship with my inner child so yeah. that she can have a voice to actually express how she's feeling so that me as that inner parent can actually soothe in a way that's meaningful and effective. Um, and mm, and yeah. I think you're probably better equipped to kind of exp- explain what that process is like in terms of what inner child work is. I'm not the licensed therapist here, you are. But that's been my approach um, in terms of really slowing well, yeah, down and giving myself a moment to stop And to assess and to not be so reactive and be like, okay, what's, what are the facts of the matter? And then what is, what am I making it this mean about, like, what's the story I'm telling about the circumstance that I'm in? And that tended to be very, like a similar story from my past. And so when I could start Mm -hmm. to identify those stories, then I could identify what were the feelings associated with them. And how can I actually meet my needs in the moment versus putting that responsibility on someone else and looking outside myself yeah. for that comfort? Yeah, Tori, that, that's exactly what I would say. That was great. I, I don't think I could say it better. I, <laughs> I think that's awesome. I, that inner child thing, I think what, what stuck out to me when I really first started chewing on that question was well, okay, all these trauma responses are really fear-based. Mm-hmm. And, um, and fear is really good at getting away from things, but it doesn't really cast a good vision for what you should get to, you know? Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's tricky. I can avoid relationship because it's scary, but that doesn't tell me how to build a good one. I can try to be controlling, you know, but often our controlling behavior is to try to just get rid of the bad thing or get something superficially good. It's like, I want you to listen to me. It's like, okay, but okay, why? Like, okay, you want your kid to listen, 
but that doesn't necessarily inform the kind of person you want them to grow up to be or the kind of character or the values that you want them to attach to. It's like, you know, there's lots of analogies people have used to describe this. Like, I think a good one, I think Bessel van der Kolk has used it. I think Gabor Maté has used it, is this idea of like running away from a bear in the woods. And the thing is, when you're running away from a threat or something overwhelming, you're not thinking, oh, where should I set up camp? Like, where, where would be a good place with like access to clean water and firewood? You're just thinking anywhere but the bear. Mm-hmm. Just like, get me away from this bear. And you'll run maybe, you know, into kind of bad circumstances even to get away from a bear. Like you could run, you know, up a tree and then the bear starts climbing up a tree, then you're really stuck, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's not obvious that just getting away from the bad thing is good enough because you can run from a bear into a nest of snakes. Like, you know, you, you gamble to distract from your sad marriage. And then it's like, well, you're still in a pickle, you know? So the actual, the positive replacement needs to have some serious thought. And I think the road to the positive replacement, some people would say it's, it's your values. And I, I would say yes, but what you said, I think is actually a bit sharper, which is what were the needs that weren't met in childhood? Like, not just what happened, what was bad, what was traumatic. It's what should have happened. That's harder. Like, oh, my mom was, was not warm. Well, what kind of warmth did you need? And when did you need it most? And what would that have even looked like? And then what would it look like to offer and access that warmth in the present? And to offer yourself that warmth. Because you've tried offering yourself coldness. That doesn't work. You've tried berating yourself and calling yourself all these nasty labels. You're still stuck. If, if that would have worked, it probably would have worked by now, right? So may as well <laughs> try the other thing. May as well uh, nurture and be warm and kind and come near. And, and yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that that the information that it's, it's in the inner child work, like you're saying. It's yeah. in what happened in the past. It is. And I... It, just to be vulnerable for a second to help people really grasp this when I, when we think and are talking about this specific example and I try to apply it to my life and think about where have I experienced that um, and what was the, ultimately what's at the root, like the, the, the work that I do with people and I know uh, you as well is it's about what's getting all of these coping mechanisms or survival strategies or personality, like uh, traits or whatever they might be, like these are manifestations of an underlying root problem. What, what, ha- where did these stem from? Why did I start to have these adaptive, you know, um, tendencies? And for me, when I think about this particular instance about maybe your wife going out and, or your partner going out and like wanting to hang out with friends yeah, yeah. and feeling abandoned, et cetera, like uh, to practically give people a way to identify like what's at the root. For me, what I did was think about the feeling and and then I would ask myself like, what does this remind me of? Right. When, when else have I felt this way? And try to think it to the earliest memories. And for me, because this is a real life example I've, I've worked through in my relationships in my life. Yeah. And it was, I remember being three years old and needing my mom and going to bed and crying myself to sleep. And my mom was not that she didn't love me, not that she wouldn't have been there. She was at work. She was at work and dad was there, but mom wasn't. And for whatever reason, I really wanted mom. And I cried myself to sleep. 
And for years, there was un, it was there was like this loop that was not ever filled with mom coming to comfort me, right? And I was having to self-soothe on my own, but a belief that was formed, because I, what I do with people is I, I, I say, let's write a timeline of events in your life about mm-hmm. big things that happen. They can be good, positive or negative in your mind, but what were the events that happened? And then what was the belief that was formed as a result of that event? And for me in that small little <laughs> child's brain, three or four years old, crying out for mom, started to form a belief that the people I love aren't there for me when I need them. Mm. Yeah. And when I really was able to sit with that, I was able to grieve for that little one that was like, oh, you going out with your friends on a night or you not coming to this event that I'm putting on or you not being at the at like the holiday dinner that is really important to me. It, and I'm excited to like show this relationship off to my family. It reinforced the belief that you're not there when I need you. You're not there when I need you. And so much of my life and my my relational like, tension, I could, I could look back at all these different moments and be like, yes, that belief was playing itself out. And I was finding more evidence that that was true. And I'll tell you, Matthias, it wasn't until I did some really deep work <laughs> to uncover that and to, to set that straight that I could then actually like end that loop in a way mm-hmm. that was healing. And then actually, actually let her know I'm here. Like, baby girl, I am here and I'm not going anywhere. And that has helped me so much since then, but it took years. It took so many years. And honestly, sadly, relationships ending and not working out, not just because of me, but, you know, for various reasons that I had to see like, oh, I'm the common denominator here. And this, this story that I have had for so long isn't helping me. It's actually hurting the connection that I really, really deeply crave. Yeah. I relate strongly to that story. Mm. When I hear that story, even with clients, the more common label, it's, it's not just, um, no one's there for me. It's I'm not, I'm not worth being there for. Mm. I mean, it's pretty normal for a kid to make that about something insufficient in me. Yeah. Or, uh, the, just the gravity of this loneliness mm-hmm. is my life and something I deserve and something I need to figure out on my own. Mm-hmm. And, and then the polarity, the kind of the contrast of feeling completely overwhelmed by the loneliness, but also feeling overwhelmed by connection because I don't know what to do with that either. Right. It's, um, <laughs> yeah, is is a prison cell. It mm-hmm. feels like this really painful cycle. Like when you were talking about self-sabotage, I think that's what it is. It's like, Self-sabotage isn't just maybe a, this nefarious force in us. It's, it's two parts of us that are trying to do very different things. And both parts of us think the other's trying to sabotage. Like the part of me that finds intimacy overwhelming and really vulnerable and I kind of feel helpless and afraid when I'm seen is like trying to make sure that all the closeness is far, far away. Mm-hmm. That's their main goal. And they're sabotaging the part that's like, we are suffocating in this loneliness. I can't take it. I can't take Mm. just not having any warmth or connection. I need to be seen. I need to belong. Mm. Yeah, I I think so so many people listening to that are can relate. So how do you reconcile those two internal conflicting desires? Yeah, the big aha moment, I think, is that both of them are trying to do 
the same thing in different ways. Mm. And we think that one's the enemy. We do. We think uh, there's, there's the dictator in my mind, the critical part. There's the suicidal part of me. There's the part of me that overeats, the part of me that is insecure, the part of me that, um, that cheats, that's unfaithful, that, uh, that hates my kid, you know, whatever you want to title it. Mm-hmm. And then we're reluctant to actually look at what is that part trying to do? Not just like, what do we think it's up to? But like if that part could speak on its own and explain its motivation, explain its intentions, like suicide, for example, like the suicidal part is often trying to take away pain. It's, it's like, this is overwhelming and this is terrible. And what we're going to do this for the next 40, 50 years. And in a weird way, that part is probably actually trying to help. Mm-hmm. Like, and then the scary thing is to actually entertain that because we're afraid, well, if I entertain the positive intention behind a really problematic thing, that means it's going to grow. But I don't know, when have you ever known that to happen? Like, have you ever talked to somebody and then they really feel heard and listened and like their intentions are really validated and then they take up more space and get more aggressive and angrier? Like, no, they, they calm down, <laughs> they relax. People get agitated and angry and more forceful when they feel misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Not, not when they feel understood. Right. And right. so by going towards that, that part of me that overeats, like, what's their intention? You know, like, well, they, they just, they're lazy. I was like, oh, okay. Would they put it that way? Or is that, is that your story about mm-hmm. what that part is? And then I find, oh, well, they're emotionally soothing. I'm like, from what? Well, from the stress. I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. Uh, what else? Because my guess is like, if it's taking over the steering wheel that aggressively, then it probably is under the belief that you're not handling the stress very well. Mm. You know, and, and maybe there's more stress that it's holding than you realize. Most, most of the time, overeating parts, for example, just to use that specific one, it has a lot more to do with belonging than stress. It's almost always an identity thing. It's mm. often connected to shame. It's not uncommon. It's connected to feeling used as a kid. Yeah. You know, and I mean, different people experience that in different ways, not painting big strokes, but, you know, the differentials is the technical term that I'm holding as a therapist when I'm working with someone who's, you know, has an eating disorder or someone that, you know, feels like completely powerless against binge eating, for example, or something. It's, um, it's, it's very, very common. There's some deep rejection that they really don't know how to hold. And the overeating part is filling an emptiness that has very little to do with their stomach. Mm-hmm. And you don't know that unless you ask. Like you have all these hypotheses and guesses, like, oh, it's trying to emotionally soothe and trying to handle stress, but you'd never ask the part directly. Yeah. Same thing goes with suicide. Same thing goes with the part that cheats, the part that hates your kid. Gosh, what positive intention could a part that hates my kid have? It's like, well, a part that actually probably doesn't want to harm your kid, usually. I mean, the part that's trying to speak up and talk about how you kind of hate being a mom or you regret having kids is the part of you that still kind of holds on to the dreams that you had that weren't, you know, you know, overlapping with being a mom or being a dad. It's like, and, and some of those dreams you probably still do hold and have some affection for, but they're completely underrepresented in your life right now. Mm-hmm. And you've kind of let them go. You've let them starve. And, and maybe that part, if you didn't let those dreams starve in that way, they lack. They probably don't have it out for your kid. They probably just see that things are out of balance and you haven't been taking care of yourself or your dreams or there's values. There's, 
something beautiful that you're not in touch with and that's a problem. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to shake you using the any, anything that you will get your attention. Right. And the only thing that that's in front of your attention right now is your kids. So that's the thing they're going after. And, and uh, yeah. yeah, they feel like their identity is absorbed and that probably has layers back into the past as well, a feeling an identity that was totally subsumed by something else. Mm. Do you think, so, do you I'm think- dropping a lot of bombs. Yeah, right. yeah, no, it's <laughs> yeah. good. Do you think yeah. that that also yeah. is in any way related to something that comes up a lot with my clients and with people that just that I know that I have heard people talk about this is like thwarting responsibility. And when you talk about the parent thing, uh, I would imagine that comes with a significant amount of responsibility. If you don't trust yourself to step up, if you don't trust yourself Mm. to be able to handle big responsibilities, one way to get out of it is just be like, I don't want to do this. You know what I mean? No, like, What do you, how how do you help somebody who continually kind of sabotages, even being in a relationship, having to, you know, requires certain levels of like growing up and maturing and being responsible for yourself and for a household and for this dynamic and taking care of it. For those that might find themselves in self-sabotaging patterns, do you see that related to being or or taking responsibility at all? That's a good question. I've thought a lot about um, willpower and responsibility. And there's kind of this paradox that, you know, not just psychology, but even neuroscience doesn't really know how to put their finger on. Like in a good, a good analogy to kind of summarize what this paradox is, is like, let's say there's um, a spark that flies into a pile of wood and starts a forest fire. You could ask, well, whose fault is the forest fire? Mm. It's like, oh, it's the spark, right? Okay, the spark started it. But then you could say, well, the wind was the one who blew the spark into the pile of sticks. So mm-hmm. is it the wind's fault? Like, yes, yes, it's the wind's fault. Well, okay, but, you know, the weather came, you know, a day after and rained. You know, if the weather would have come a day earlier, then, you know, the pile of sticks would have been wet and it wouldn't have mattered if the wind blew the spark in. So is it the weather's fault for not coming earlier? And I'm like, uh, and we're like, what about the oxygen? Oxygen had to be there for the spark to be there. Like, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Whose fault is it? Mm-hmm. And then the reality is not everything can be solved by figuring out whose fault it is. And that's not to say there isn't situations where there's fault. I'm not, sure. you know, don't, don't take it as a sweeping statement. I'm just saying there's, there's more ways to look at something than just, well, who's at fault? Because on one level you could say, well, okay, I sabotaged my relationship. That's my fault. And it's like, sure. Um, but also what was the environment? What were all the things feeding into your decisions, your resources, the things that you could have responded to. Mm. I mean, there was, there's probably tons of different things that if you made adjustments, even just to the environment, that probably would encourage different sorts of responses. And it's not all one or the other because we can't go all the way on that end of the spectrum too. There's a whole philosophy of science that says we're essentially just the output of all our environmental inputs. If we could just fine tune our environment, then we would make all these perfect decisions. Mm. It's the idea that everyone's always doing the best they can. And I don't, I don't hold that particularly. I, I look back on several choices I've made and thought, well, that wasn't my best. <laughs> I, I could probably have done something better. And, yeah. um, you know, so philosophically, we're in some different territories. I, I probably hold the ground of your will, um, the responsibility that you take is certainly a, a pivotal part of the environment of your choices. Along with that 
are the sleep that you get, the fuel in your body that you ingest, um, the relationships that are supportive in your life, your own awareness of your own past and how it's informing your present day behavior, your abilities for emotional regulation to flexibly engage with the present moment mm. uh, versus just instinctually responding because of past habits that you formed that you're aware of or not aware of. Um, even, I mean, things like mold exposure, uh, if you have Lyme disease, like mm. I think there's a, you know, dozens of different things we could name that could be impacting your capacity to make a choice that's presenting mental friction. Sure. Mental friction being that like, I know I should do this, but I want to do this other thing. Like we all experience mental friction. The resources that we have to, to do something difficult, like impulse control, to sacrifice something now for something we want more later. I mean, that's a multifactored problem. <laughs> and so how do I take responsibility and stop sabotaging? I, I approach that like, well, okay, what are the environmental factors that are supporting or not supporting your decision? I want to make that. All the things I just listed. I mean, everything from the body, sleep, relationships, um, you know, doing your own trauma work, all that. Mm-hmm. I mean, second, it's like, okay, sabotaging. Who's sabotaging what? Are, are there different people at the wheel in your own mind and heart? And you have to probably narrow down some of those polarities, some of those parts of you that are trying to fight for different things. There's a part of you that wants to be in a relationship and a part that doesn't. Why doesn't that part want to be in relationship? Yeah. You know, and, and are you settling on a title or a label that you've ascribed to that part? Or are you hearing from the part directly? That's, that's the language I've really started to land on is, if that part could talk, what would they say about themselves? And it's terrifying to ask that question. You, who knows what will come up? Right, right. And, uh, yeah, that's a good place to start. At least there's probably more. But yeah, I no. Welcome to my you gave so many good, so many good tips. And what I'm hearing, I mean, as you're talking about parts work, I hear that internal family systems um, yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. That's uh, right. work and. And just talking about all of the contributing factors that might be playing a role in your choices. And I think what you just alluded to is all of the benefits of working, doing this work, of working with a therapist like yourself, uh, finding a safe space where you can start to piece out and like dissect what's actually happening versus what's just a default like pattern what's why are these things occurring because ultimately we people that listen to the show and just if you're a human being in general we're always kind of assessing how we feel and our quote unquote results if we are have the life that we want to have versus the life that we're currently experiencing and there's for many people this gap between where they are and where they want to be and they don't know how to bridge that gap and you just mm. gave us so many kind of tangible things, but ideas that like we can use and why it's beneficial to actually go within, to stop bad, to stop coming to this like crossroads where you're like, oh, I'm just going to do what I've done, do what I've done. And I'm going to continue to be frustrated and disappointed or like fed up. But it's oftentimes like we get to a point where we are fed up and we're like, I can't keep doing this. It's like that suicidal part or that completely defeated part that I don't see, I don't have hope that we're like, I've got to do something different. And I know the work that you do with your clients is absolutely transformational because it gives them Mm -hmm. hope. And what you did with this, you know, in the last hour is, is you've told people that there's, there's a different way. Like it doesn't always have to be 
this way. And I think that's the message that many people need to hear right now uh, that are struggling. Yeah. Well, and Tori, I mean, I think you created a really great pathway, even what you said earlier too, for that investigation. The title I use for that is called the float back. That's the at least therapy-ish okay. term for it. It's float back. Okay, I feel this in the moment. Where have I felt this before in the past? What does this remind me of? Kind of returning to that memory. And then what did I need in that memory? And then what relevance does that have to what I need in the present? Mm -hmm. Such a great tool. So practical. So actually doable. That's a journaling exercise anyone can do just right now. And, you know, I think that what I was talking about at the end is like, that's a piece of it, certainly. There's the past. There's the actual body that we're in. There's the physical components of the body that we're in, the sleep and the nutrition you're getting, all that. There's the relationships. It's not just one thing, you know? Mm-hmm. We're multi, that, uh, multi-dimensional, very complex human beings. Yeah, like the the, the human experience is one that, you know, it's, it's complex. And I think we can have so much uh, judgment for it. But I think this conversation, mm-hmm. what it gives me is a lot more compassion, a lot more grace, you know, a lot more understanding for our complexities. And if we can just have the willingness to, be curious about them. Um, that's often the path path forward. It's just like getting neutrally curious instead of trying to slap labels on if it's good or bad or right or wrong. It's just like, hmm, let me just learn more about myself and and why I do the things I do and why what's important to me is what's is important to me. And that can be so well said. The biggest yeah. difference in somebody's life. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't have said it better myself. That's yeah. amazing. Oh. You are amazing. And I just want to say thank you for your work, for your commitment to doing your own personal work, but sharing this work with over 5 million people worldwide. And I know that number is only going to continue to grow. You're making a massive difference in the world and uh, in the lives of those that you work with. Um, I just want to give you an opportunity to share with people uh, because we could go on and on. And I hope that you will return (laughs) at some point to this show and give us more of your wisdom. But can you tell people what you're excited about? What are you working on right now? And where can they find you online? Oh, wonderful. Thank you. This was such a meaningful conversation for me too. I love the work that you're doing in the world. I think it really matters and is making a real difference with people. So I feel like we're uh, we're in this together. Mm. Thank you for having me on. And if anyone wants to engage with my stuff, yeah, I, I've, you know, all channels are Matthias J. Barker. Um, and I'm sure you could find that in the show notes, how to spell all that. But yeah, Matthias J. Barker on Instagram, on TikTok. Um, I do a lot of online workshops, so workshops on healing from trauma, you know, that come with these workbooks that are meant to kind of guide you through the how of some of these things. So if anything that we've talked about today was like, oh man, that sounds great. That sounds interesting. But how would I actually even start to do that? <laughs> I, I've built, you know, kind of actual tools to guide you step-by-step through that. And those are within the workshops that I do. So that's where a lot of my stuff points to. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, You have an open invite, my friend. Thank you for making time. You guys, please go go make sure to follow Matthias. Check out these workshops. This is your how-to to start to move through some of this stuff, your pain, your patterns, start to uncover the truth of who you are so that you can really answer the question, who am I? What do I want? And how do I get what I want? That's what we're all wrestling with. And, and he's giving you a roadmap in, in some of his workshops. So I highly recommend you go check it out. And we ask if you want to support this show, if you continue to get value from it, I just want to say thank you and ask that you would share it with a friend. And if you could really do us a massive favor, 
you could leave us a rating and a written review. That is one of the best ways to help make sure this show continues to reach as many listeners as possible. And I just want to say deepest gratitude for everybody that tunes into the show every week um, that continues to come back and share it with your family, your friends, and the people that are meaningful to you so that you can up-level in your life and your business. Thank you for being here, you guys. We'll see you next week on The Coachable Podcast.